Heavenly Father, we come to you. You are the sovereign um, God of all. And Lord, as we come, we today we wish to bring to you our prayer uh, for the nation of Israel. We know that this is your covenant nation, your covenant people. And Lord, as they uh, face these attacks upon them at this moment, um, Lord, we just pray for your hand of protection um, upon them. Lord, we pray for wisdom uh, for the leaders in that area and for the leaders of Israel and uh, the other nations, Lord. We pray for wisdom in the decisions being made. We pray for the innocents. We pray for those um, that are caught up um, on both sides um, who um, are facing um, these incredibly difficult times. Um, Lord, we just pray for those that have lost loved ones. We pray that your hand of comfort will be upon those. And we bring these people to you. We bring this nation into your hand and we bring it to you in prayer. We pray for our country, Lord, um, as we go through an election yesterday, last night, um, we see a new government being formed. And Lord, we just pray for wisdom for them. We pray, um, Lord, that they may uh, do what is right in your eyes, Lord, as they make decisions. Lord, we pray for those um, believers that those Christian believers that have been elected uh, into, that will be elected into this government. Lord, we pray for them because it's an incredibly difficult place um, to be and to stand strong in your faith. Lord, we pray that they will have courage to stand strong for what they know is truth and what they, what they hold on to and believe. Lord, we thank you for our Sunday school. We thank you for our children of this congregation. We are blessed um, to have them as part of our church and their families. Lord, we pray as they go to Sunday school today, Lord, that your word will um, sink deep into their heart. We pray that it will um, one day, if it's not now, but if not now, Lord, it will be soon, that they may each come to know you as their own Lord and Saviour. We thank you for our Sunday school teachers who teach your word um, with faith, so faithfully to our children. Lord, give them the words to say. Give them clarity and uh, what they are teaching today, we ask. And Lord, we pray too for Tom um, as he brings your word to us this morning. Lord, we pray for uh, clarity for him as he brings the word you have laid on his heart. Lord, may our hearts be open. May our hearts um, desire to be changed by the word of God. And Lord, we just bring these things to you now and commit them to you. And we thank you for it in the mighty name of our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. And I'd like to now invite Tom up as he brings the message to us this morning. Uh, good morning. Um, can you please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6? And today we're going to be reading um, Ephesians chapter 6 verses 1 to 9. So please follow along. Children. Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honour your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service, as people pleases, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. 
rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. So we're now nearing the end of our study in the book of Ephesians. And as we've encountered, there are two clear sections throughout this letter that the Apostle Paul has written to the church at Ephesus. Chapters 1 to 3 are theological, emphasizing New Testament doctrines, while the final three chapters are practical and focus on Christian behavior. And what we have on our hands today is a passage that addresses two main relationships, the parent-child relationship and the slave-master relationship. While the parent-child relationship still remains in our culture, the slave-master relationship in the context of what it looked like in the first century does not exist in today's Western culture. So for reasons that will be touched on shortly, the teaching here that relates to slaves and masters also applies to anyone who is hired by an employer. Now, I can't say that I've had experience in all of these relationships. I have been able to experience being a child, though. Alongside my siblings, um, most of whom, whom are here, Jack, Maddie, and Levi, and Annalise. She's the one who's not here. Um, alongside those siblings, um, I was raised by loving and caring parents, um, Gary and Ellie. So I feel pretty confident about speaking about children. My wife and I, Yakane, um, do not have kids, uh, so I've not yet had the experience of childhood. And to be honest, I wasn't sure how I was going to approach teaching all of you parents about how to parent. But throughout my study, I've been encouraged by the fact that it is not actually about myself preaching my ideas to the church, but teaching God's word what his message is to the congregation. You may or may not have noticed that it's been quite a while since I've preached here at Hukunui. In the past 15 months or so, I've been very down about my preaching ability and have really battled with both the feeling that what I'm saying is no good and that I'm not a good communicator and that people don't like listening to me speak. In addition to this, I was getting discouraged by the mental strain that preaching places on me and the preparation and on both Yakane and I in the weeks that are building up. And what I've really been challenged by in the last three or four months is the way that God has taught me that it's not about whether people think I'm good or bad, that it's not about whether I think my preaching is good to listen to, but that as long as I learn what the passage is saying and stand up here and teach it, I'm doing my service before God. So like I say, I'm not preaching my ideas to the church this morning, but speaking God's message to his congregation. There have been some key people who have encouraged me to stand up here today, so I thank you for your support. So the other relationship touched on this passage is the employee-employer relationship. And I have had the experience of being an employee at the role that I currently work in at KPMG. And I have my manager that I report to, and then even higher authorities of the partners and directors. And I have also, as many of you may not know this, had experience in the role of an employer. When I finished high school and throughout my, some of my university holidays, I was a planting contractor, planting forests. And when I was doing a um, full winter's work, we plant during the winter, um, I could get a good crew together. 
um, we're planting 20,000 20, trees a week. However, there was one occasion where I didn't have time to find good workers. I couldn't be as selective as I'd like to be, and here I learned how difficult being an employer can be. So I jumped on Trade Me Jobs and put up an advert, and a week later, the crew I'd put together was driving up into the wop-wops of the far north, made up of one experienced planter, a cook, a gardener, and two road workers, confident that I could train up anyone willing to give it their 100%. So we go up north um, and we begin our planting operation. Um, the experienced planter, we'll call him Jason, um, he was pretty good. He was a real good planter, um, but he was getting frustrated by these new guys that couldn't keep up. So he said, can I go, and, can I go plant some of my own area? Because you get paid per tree, so it's not like an hourly thing. So I said, yep, and I sent him off over the hill to plant his own area um, while I helped teach the other guys. So I go to check on Jason later on, um, and he's talking to someone. I'm thinking, well, Okay, um, and then as I get closer, I, I can hear him swearing at them, and I'm thinking, what the heck's going on? I go up, and, and he's all by himself. And I find out that Jason is uh, a schizophrenic paranoia. So if you're not familiar with schizophrenic paranoia, we're talking Gollum from Lord of the Rings. Anyway, so... By the end of the day, I mean, he, he's a great planter, he's a great planter, but by the end of the day, um, we go up to the utes, and because um, my brother had, had kindly let us borrow his ute, uh, that one was gone. So Jason had been driving that ute, and, and, I, and I go up and it's gone. Can't get hold of Jason. Um, I'm panicking, because so, we're staying up there, we're staying in Kaitaia, so I get all the other boys in the other ute. I'm thinking, oh, what am I going to do? Um, so we go to the accommodation, I'm getting ready to call the police, And then Jason comes around the corner, screams into the car park with the other ute, um, and jumps out with two boxes of beer under his arms. So it's just getting out of control. Um, the, the rest of the evening, out of control. Um, they're playing up. They're getting drunk in the courtyard of the accommodation. Um, so I need to make a new plan. So I think, okay, let's go back to Whangarei and reset. Um, so as part of the contract, you have to be... Um, you have to have provide a clean drug test. So I think, okay, let's go back. We'll go under the guise of, uh, we need to go and do drug testing um, and then head back to Whangarei. Um, I thought, man, this, this Jason guy's got to be on something, eh? Um, maybe even with a bit of luck, uh, he might get weeded out of the crew. <laughs> so anyway, we jump in the utes, um, go to a day's planting and then head down to Whangarei. Um, and, and, the, and the arrangement is that if they pass the drug test, then I'll pay for it. Um, and then if they don't pass the drug test, then that comes out of their pay, because why would you do it? You know that you're on drugs if you're going to fail. So as we're driving through Whangarei, um, each of the members of the crew keeps saying, oh, drop me home, bro. Oh, I'm not going to pass today. <laughs> so then by the time we get to the drug test, the drug testing center, there's only myself, Jason, and one of the road workers left. So Jason and the road worker take the drug test. I get given a positive paper and a negative paper, and then all of a sudden it's only me and Jason left in the crew. <laughs> Needless to say, I organized a contractor that afternoon to do the rest of the planting and gave up on my aspirations of being a successful planting contractor. So we'll be looking at these four offices today, child, parent, employee, and employer, through the lens of mutual submission and submission to Christ. Thus, the three points of the sermon are children and parents, slaves and masters, 
Christ and Christians. Before we get to our first point, there's a small verse that we're going to look back to that has huge ramifications on the way that we address this passage. So cast your eyes just up the page to Ephesians 5 verse 21. In your Bibles, um, it should say something along the lines of submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And this is Paul's introduction into this section of the letter. He's teaching that true believers live in submission to one another. And he goes on to give three examples of what it looks like to submit to one another. First is husbands and wives. Jeff spoke on this last week about how the wife is to submit to the husband because he has been placed as the head of the wife just as Christ is the head of the church. But then it gives instruction on how the husband is to submit to the wife, and he is to do this by loving her. And Jeff explained how in the same way that Christ loved his church, or loves his church, husbands are to love their wives. So that's the first example of how believers are to submit to one another. And then this week, we're going to look at the other two examples, parents and children and slaves and masters. So firstly, children and parents. In the same way that the, marriage, that the marriage passage began with wives being taught to submit to their husbands as the head of the relationship, this passage begins by teaching children how to submit to the head of the family relationship, the parents. They are to do this through obedience and honour. Obedience denoting action and honour denoting attitude. Verse 1 says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. I mean, this is like being a child 101, right? It's just what kids do. Your mum and dad um, look after you, so it's only fair that you obey them. But notice it doesn't say, children, obey your parents when you agree with them. It just says, obey your parents, for this is right. When I was maybe um, nine or ten years old, I really wanted to play cricket. But my mum and dad didn't want me to. I mean, fair enough. It's because cricket's a pretty long and drawn-out game. Um, for a Saturday, kids' cricket can be a bit of an eyesore. Every second ball is a wide. Um, you watch your kid play, they get out first ball, then you spend the next three hours watching all the other parents' kids play cricket. Anyway, I was not happy. I loved watching the Black Caps. I loved playing with Jack and Annalise in the backyard, but I wasn't allowed to play cricket for a club. Now, the right thing for me to do was to obey and submit to my parents' decision, even though I didn't agree with the reasoning it was the right thing to do. And unless they're asking you to sin, children, you are to obey your parents. As Paul says here, because it is the right thing to do. Now, after a couple of years, my parents recognised that playing cricket was something that I really wanted to do and eventually allowed me to join the team. I played for Carmo Red. We played three seasons. We lost every game. And our team's highest total was 45 runs. So not only are children to obey their parents' action, but they are also to honour their parents. To honour denotes more of an attitude than an action. And Paul is directly quoting the Ten Commandments here when he says, Honour your father and mother, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. To honour means to value highly and hold in the highest regard with respect. Honouring your parents is what drives the obedience. When you hold someone in the highest regard and honour them highly, you do wish to obey them. You do wish to respect them. And when you disobey or dishonour them, 
you feel remorse and sorrow because you have pulled them down from that place of honour. There's a time when I was in high school and, and I lied to my mum. I told her um, to her face that I was heading into town when really I was going to the beach with some friends who were wagging school. I wish that I could say that I owned up myself, but my mum found out that day and I had to face my actions. There was no punishment necessary. I had, honoured, I had dishonoured my mother directly to her face and it is one of the biggest regrets that I lied to her. She graciously forgave me, but the guilt that I felt because I had torn my mother down from the respect and honour that she deserved. Children, we are to honour our father and mother. This doesn't stop when we leave home, because as Christians, we are to honour all people. When our parents grow old and need assistance, an honouring child will take care of their parents, in the same way that our parents took care of us when we were young and needed help. Not saying that we need to obey parents when we get married or when we leave home, but the command to honour them remains. The commandment comes with a promise. It says that, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. That it, that it may go well with you relates to quality of life and that you may live long relates to quantity. And while this was promised to Israel um, in the Ten Commandments as they look to inherit the promised land, it also rings true for believers because Paul has, it in, has included it here. And though this promise was realised in many tangible, physical, earthly blessings for the Israelites, for a family today, the blessings may not always be tangible. But we know that God instructs us for good, however, and we, must, uh, and we see rich, God-given harmony and satisfaction in families where children and parents live in mutual love and submission. Now, this is the part where we really pick up on the main theme of the passage. Ephesians 5.21, submit to one another. Paul, the writer, is saying that those who are under authority are to submit to those in authority. And, get this, those who are in authority are to submit to those in, who are in submission to them. And in each of these three examples, we're first taught about submission to the head of the relationship, and then we taught about submission by the head of the relationship. So while a wife's submission is more natural and known in the church, the husband's primary submission to his wife is through his boundless love and sacrifice to her. Points that Jeff emphasised last week. So in the same way, while children are naturally going to be somewhat submissive to parents, that doesn't come, what doesn't come as naturally is that parents are to submit to their children through love, service and sacrifice. So in verse 4, Paul says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Paul states in the negative how not to love your children, provoking to anger, and then flips it to the positive, stating how parents ought to love their children through discipline and instruction. Provoking to anger suggests a repeated ongoing pattern of treatment that gradually builds or can build up a deep-seated anger and resentment that can boil over to outward hostility. Um, growing up, we've been blessed to have parents who have supported us in our sport, especially rugby. And my dad came to just pretty much every, every rugby game that he could make, um, and I really appreciated that. 
except on the occasions um, when myself or my team wasn't doing so well. And there's this particular year, and I was playing for, for Maris. We actually lost every game. I make it sound like we were terrible at sport, eh? <laughs> I guess not all teams could say the same. Um, so, the, yeah, I was playing for this Maris team. It was quite early in the season, so we didn't know that we were terrible yet. Um, anyway, the other team had run in a few tries, and we were all huddled behind the posts. And I hear this voice that I recognise saying, Marist, you're tackling like chickens! <laughs> and I'm just like, oh. And all the boys are like, oh, who's that old man? <laughs> and I'm just, oh, just, I just wanted to bury myself, eh? Anyway, um, this is something that I, I found exasperating. So it's, it's um, important as parents um, not to exasperate your children. When I started playing basketball, um, it actually got toned back a lot. Um, so, yeah, I could see God doing a work in my dad's heart. Um, <laughs> or maybe dad didn't know the rules as well. <laughs> so some common causes of resentment in children can be um, smothering your children, overly restricting where they can go and what they can do. Favoritism. Preferring some of your children over others. And we can see the damage that that can do to a family. In the book of Genesis, when Isaac had a favourite son of Esau and Rebekah had a favourite son of Jacob. Um, pushing achievement beyond reasonable bound is another cause of resentment. Sometimes children feel like there is nothing they can do to please their parents. The expectations are way too high. It's important to, be, to compliment your children so that, do, so that they do not feel discouraged. Physical and verbal abuse. This is one of the largest growing problems in New Zealand and can even happen among Christian parents. Fathers especially sometimes overreact and spank their children much harder than necessary. Proper physical discipline is not a matter of exerting superior authority and strength, but of correcting in love and reasonableness. On the subject of discipline, this is something that comes very naturally to parents. We all wish to have well-behaved children. We want to have good kids at church. We want to have good kids at the supermarket. We want to have good kids at school. If our kids don't behave as we've instructed them, we discipline them. We give them a spank. We put them in time out. We confiscate their device from them. Sometimes parents get so caught up in teaching their child how to act like a Christian, but we do not model to them what Christianity really looks like. So how do we model what Christianity should look like? We go to where the word Christian comes from, Christ. Jesus Christ was the ultimate authority over the 12 disciples. Not only was he Lord and Saviour, he was their rabbi, their teacher. And we see an example of the leadership of Christ over his disciples. Um, John 13, verse 4 to 5. When Jesus rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. And after Jesus does this, he teaches the disciples that they are to do the same to one another. And later on in verse 16, he says, a slave is no greater than his master. So here he acknowledges that there's an, that there's an order that there is authority, 
But he also teaches that if you are to lead like Christ, you must serve those whom God has put under your authority. Therefore, do things for your kids, even when they're old enough to do those things for themselves, because it models to them the love of Christ through self-sacrifice. Rather than displaying that authority just means enforcing rules so that those under you do the right thing when you're watching. Now to the positive. The way in which we are to submit to our children is through love, which is um, shown through discipline and instruction. Proverbs 22 verse 6 says, Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Another proverb says, Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. That's Proverbs 13, 24. Now this sounds exactly the opposite of what I was just teaching, doesn't it? But like many tensions in the Bible, it's about striking a balance. If the Bible teaches both servant leadership and instructional leadership, then we must partake in both. If you have no discipline at all in your household, then you're doing a disservice to your kids. The balance shifts as your children grow though. Early on, they must learn what is right and what is wrong. But if we continually harp on, about, harp on at them about the rules, then they are good kids in front of their parents, but sinful when they're not in front of their parents. But true change in their hearts, as Colin was saying this morning, only comes when they know Christ. And us witnessing to them through our sacrificial actions, especially as they grow and get older, is a powerful testimony. So after Paul has provided the second example of mutual submission, children and parents, he then moves on to the third and final relationship, slaves and masters. And this is our second point. Let's read um, verses five to eight again of Ephesians six. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. In the same way that a husband is the head over his wife and a parent is a head over the child, the master is the head over the slave. Now you may have noticed that I keep saying slave, while some of your Bibles might have the word servant or bondservant substituted. The Greek word here is doulos. And I'll explain why it's translated this way in some Bibles and why it's important for our understanding of this passage. The key distinction between a slave and a servant is that servants are hired and slaves are owned. The idea of servanthood maintains some level of self-autonomy and personal rights. On the other hand, a slave has no freedom, autonomy or rights. In the Greco-Roman world, slaves were considered property rather than people. Now the Greek language has at least half a dozen words that can mean servant but doulos is not one of them. Whenever doulos is used, both in the New Testament and in, any, and in any secular Greek literature, it always and only means slave. 
A possible reason that for so long doulos has been translated as servant or bond servant um, could be due to the stigmas attached to slavery in Western society. It's understandable that translators have wanted to avoid any association between biblical teaching and the slave trade of the British Empire and colonial America. And to be honest, the word slave still makes us cringe a little bit. Even me standing up here arguing that the word slave should be in the Bible makes us a little bit uncomfortable. We think about maybe the sex slaves that are kidnapped from the Himalayas in South America. Organisations that collect street kids, mutate them, force them to beg and make them bring back the money. There are gangs who pick up boys in Africa and groom them to become uh, loyal child soldiers, let alone the atrocities committed between 1526 to the mid-1800s in the Atlantic slave trade. Scripture does not speak against slavery in the biblical use of the office. However, it clearly speaks against the kidnapping of anyone for the purpose of making him or her a slave. Exodus 21.16 says, Whoever steals a man and sells him, if anyone is found in possession of him, shall be put to death. The European and American slave trade and any other modern slavery, slavery I have just described is therefore a clear violation of Scripture. Despite the rationalities um, of Christians who have been involved in it in the past. So to fully understand the New Testament's use of slave language, we need to begin with a historical perspective regarding the practice of slavery throughout the Greco-Roman era. Um, era. So slavery was a pervasive social structure in first century Roman Empire. In fact, it was so common that its existence as an institution was never seriously questioned by anyone. Roughly one-fifth of the empire's population were slaves. And for many slaves, life was difficult, especially those who worked in the mines or on the farms. But there was also many slaves who lived in the cities, working alongside their masters as part of their household. And for these urban slaves, life was often considerably easier. Occupations for slaves included teachers, homekeepers, cooks, shopkeepers, and doctors. From a glance on the street, it actually would have been difficult to distinguish between slaves and non-slaves. Some slaves um, belonged to the emperor were even envied by some of the free citizens due to the lavish living conditions and the proximity to the emperor himself. That said, we must be careful not to present an overly romantic impression of first century slaves. To be a slave was still to be in someone else's possession. The slave had no rights or legal status whatsoever. They could be dealt with like any other piece of property. A slave's experience then ultimately depends on the goodness and demands of their master. Slaves of abusive masters would endure a life of misery, while the slave of a good and gracious master will be exponentially better. So by using the example of a slave here, Paul illustrates that if even slaves, those who receive the least compensation and oftentimes have had the harshest working conditions, must submit to their masters, then so it is for all other paid workers that they should submit to and obey their employers. And in these verses, Paul is teaching Christians to obey their masters in everything. This is the action. We talk about action and attitude. For slaves, it, is, um, for slaves, it says in verse 5 that the attitude is to obey with 
fear and trembling. Now, the Greek word for fear is phobos. This is where we get the English word phobia from. Common phobias include aerophobia, the fear of flying, cynophobia, the fear of dogs, acrophobia, the fear of heights, my personal favourite, monstrous esquipedalophobia, the fear of long words. <laughs> now, I suffer from something called trypophobia. Some of you may or may not have heard it. If you're trypophobic, you suffer from the fear of small holes. You might think this sounds silly, but if you put trypophobia into Google, you'll see those small clusters of holes and maybe empathise with the why it makes me want to throw up when I see it. Trypophobia. Have it, uh, chuck it in Google sometime. So the word phobos is literally used in the verb to flee or to run away from in fright. But many times in the Bible, including here in verse 5, it is used of a reverential fear. It's common to hear the phrase, the fear of God in the Bible. This is phobos. But what does it mean to fear God? It's not talking about fleeing from Him, and it's not even talking about mere fear of His power or retribution and righteous judgment. But what it is talking about is a wholesome dread of displeasing Him. In the same way, slaves should have the fear of displeasing their masters, as this is what it means to be subject to them or to submit to them. As mentioned earlier, slavery, as described in the Bible, does not exist in Western culture. So for the purpose of application, similar principles carry across to an employer-employee relationship. And as mentioned before, if slaves are to obey their masters in everything, how much more are we to obey who are free? As an employee, we have been placed under the authority of an employer. In the same way that a slave is to obey their master with fear and trembling, we are to be subject to our employees, our employers rather, through action and attitude. Paul clarifies further what this looks like in both the negative and positive in verse 6, when he says, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers. So when I was a planting contractor, um, not on the occasion that I uh, specifically described to you before, sometimes I'd look up on the hill and my crew would be bunched together, sitting on tree stumps, yarning to each other instead of working. But whenever I was close to them, planting trees myself or checking the quality, they'd be walking up and down, planting the trees, working hard. Those guys thought that they were so clever that I was too far away and that I couldn't see them. And this is what Paul means by eye service only working your hardest when you're within eyeshot of the boss. When they're away, you're going on your phone or talking to your colleagues without working. He's saying not only to work hard when the boss is looking, but working hard all of the time. He continues and says, but work as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Think about what it would be like to work for the king or to work in the palace of the emperor. You get to serve the most powerful person in the world. You'd be motivated to do your best, wouldn't you? You'd take pride in your work, knowing that you're working for a great and noble cause. Now take it one step further. Imagine that you are in heaven and working directly for Christ. You serve the king of kings. You get to be in his presence every day. How much more 
Would you take pride in your work? How much more would you be motivated to do your best? This is not just someone who has hired you and pays you. This is someone who gave up his life for you and is the king and you get to work for him. Is that how you would work for your employer here on earth? Are you motivated to do your best all the time? Are you motivated to take pride and ownership of your work? Paul says to work as if you were serving the Lord. In your day job, work as if you were serving Christ directly. This is not only the case when you're serving a Christian employer, but also a non-Christian employer. Think of the witness that you can be when they see you giving it a hit 100%. And when you tell them that you work hard for them because this is how you'd work for Christ. What kind of a witness for Christ are you being in your workplace? Does your work reflect the way that you serve Christ? So now that we understand the importance of employees submitting to employers, we'll briefly look at how an employer is to submit to their employees. Let's read verse 9. Masters, do the same to them. And stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. The instruction to employers is found, um, is found in verse 9, and it says, Masters, do the same. Simple. These same things, same things that masters are to do from verse 6, that is, um, doing the will of God from the heart, says there at the end of verse 6. Thus Christian employers are to serve their employees the same way that Christian workers should serve their bosses by doing the will of God. Think about what it would be like if you were second in charge for the king or to work directly under the emperor in charge of his servants. You get to serve the most powerful person in the world. You'd be motivated to do your best. You would take pride in your leadership, knowing that you are helping a great and noble cause. Now take it one step further. Imagine that you were in heaven and working directly for Christ. You serve the King of Kings. You get to be in His presence every day, helping organise His affairs and leading others in God's will. How much more would you lead with care and compassion? To lead by example. To be gracious and forgive those who make mistakes. To get alongside your subordinates and train and mentor them in the will of God. This is how employers are to submit to their workers, to serve them in the same way that Christ is above us, yet he serves us. He sticks out his neck for us. He provides us teaching and guidance, and he empowers us to pass that knowledge on to others. So all of what we've discussed so far Children and parents, slaves and masters, is encompassed by our final point, Christ and Christians. Notice that from what we've studied, the four different offices of child, parent, slave and master, the ultimate authority is always the Lord. Verse 1, children, obey your parents in the Lord. Verse 4, parents, bring them up in discipline and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, Rendering service with a, good, with a good will as to the Lord. And in verse 9, Masters, stop your threatening, knowing that he, that is the Lord, who is both their master and yours, is in heaven. The Lord is where the power comes from in your obedience and honour. 
This is where the strength comes from, to push on in love and sacrifice. When we serve those whose authority we have been placed under, we are serving Christ. When a wife has a harsh, selfish and domineering husband, but chooses to submit to him anyway, she is submitting to Christ. When a child obeys their parents, even though they find them exasperating and provoking, they are submitting to Christ. When a worker faithfully works with motivation and integrity, despite having an unfair or even cruel boss, they are submitting to Christ. It can be hard sometimes, but we're not expected to do this on our own. As believers, we have the power of Christ in us to empower us to obey even when we don't feel like it, to lay down our own desires and to serve, to give it our 100%, to work even though we are low on energy. And we can draw on this example of Christ because He obeyed God the Father and went to the cross, despite not wishing the judgment upon Himself. He laid down His own desires to serve others, to wash the disciples' feet, to feed the crowd, to teach so much even though he needed sleep. And he gave it his 100%. He healed the sick, he raised the dead, and he always had time for people, even the smallest children. Though we may not receive the earthly recognition that we feel like we deserve, our good works never go unnoticed by God. Verse 8 says, Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. The story is told of an elderly missionary couple who were returning home on a ship after many years of sacrificial service in Africa. On the same ship was President Theodore Roosevelt, who had just completed a highly successful big game hunt. As the ship docked in New York Harbour, thousands of well-wishers and dozens of reporters lined the pier to welcome Roosevelt home but not a single person was there to welcome the missionaries. As the couple rode to, the, to their hotel in a taxi, the man complained to his wife, it just doesn't seem right. We give 40 years of our lives to Jesus Christ to win souls in Africa, and nobody knows or cares when we return. Yet the president goes over there for a few weeks to kill some animals, and the whole world takes notice. But as they prayed together that night before retiring, the Lord seemed to say to them, Do you know why you haven't received your reward yet, my children? It is because you are not home yet. Paul goes on to say in verse 9 that masters should know that they have a master of their own, God, and that there is no partiality with him. Because God has put you in a position of authority, you will not get preferential treatment from God. You will not get a free pass to be harsh or domineering to those under your authority. God holds to account those in authority who fail to be subject to those under their authority. The proud and arrogant husband brings judgment on himself when his wife submits. The harsh parent brings judgment on himself or herself when he orders his obedient kids around. And the cruel and threatening boss brings judgment on himself as his workers labour for him as if they were serving Christ. When a husband unconditionally loves his wife, regardless of the way she disrespects him, he is submitting to Christ. When a parent continues to serve and love their children, even though they rebel and disobey, they are submitting to Christ. When an employer is good to their workers, 
and is not always on their backs, threatening them of discipline and dismissal, despite them slacking off, they are submitting to Christ. And once more, the power comes through him who is the ultimate servant. Let's pray. Father, we thank you um, that as your people, we can gather before you this morning, Lord. We thank you for the freedom to be able to open the word in this country um, and the illumination that we can understand, Lord, um, what you were saying to your people back then um, and through application, Lord, what you are telling your people today. Uh, So we pray for open hearts, Lord, um, as we uh, seek to uh, make changes to our lives, Lord. Um, We pray that we would not do this in our own strength, um, but draw on your strength um, and example as the ultimate sacrifice um, and example of submission um, to those under you, Father. Um, So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.